We continue our verse-by-verse series through Luke. Luke has demonstrated the resolve of Christ to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to everyone. That is the principal reality of what Luke gave us in Jesus' ministry there at Capernaum in Luke chapter 4. The reality that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and that His primary purpose, His immense resolve, will be to advance that kingdom through the proclamation of His Word. And now, in Luke chapter 5, Luke actually goes back in time here. Because back in time before his ministry in Capernaum to when he called his first disciples. And the reason why he does this is because Luke has established in, in Luke chapter 1 verse 4 that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. That heaven has penetrated earth. The kingdom of God has come. And now, beginning in Luke chapter 5, he is going to lay out how will this kingdom be advanced. And the answer will be not only just through Christ, but through His body, the disciples. And so with that, we turn to Luke chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 1 through 11 this morning on Jesus' calling of His first disciples. We read, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Him to hear the Word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And He saw two boats by the lake, But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down to Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was little, I lost my mom pretty young. And about the only way I was going to get to church was through my grandmama's. And luckily, the Lord gave me some really good ones who drug my rebellious tail to church. And I had three grandmothers that were really essential to my life in doing so, and all three of them came from different Christian traditions, which is why you probably have a hard time putting your finger on what I come from sometimes when I'm preaching. And I know this is Baptist, Costal, Methodist, what's going on here with this? I don't know. It's because of this weird, eclectic upbringing that I had with all these grandmothers dragging me to church. But in the midst of all of them, I remember going to Sunday school in all of these churches and vacation Bible school. And there was a song that we would sing in all of them. There's a song that many of you have heard when you sang as a child, maybe very recently singing it to your own children or grandchildren. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I shall follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. Simple song. And yet it is a song that has immense truth within it. Because in it, we find the essence of Christian discipleship. What is Christian discipleship? We call ourselves disciples. We are told to go and make disciples. We repeat it at the end of every service. 
But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Is it merely a title we've slabbed upon ourselves to make us feel better about the weak? To give us a sense of moral superiority over the craziness of the world? Well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Is it something that we've merely ascribed to ourselves, but we do not live it in the least? What is a disciple of Christ? That little song we sang, the reality of turning towards Jesus, going after Jesus, and never turning back is the essence of Christian discipleship. And it's precisely what Luke gives us in these verses of the first calling of the disciples. We see the essence of what Christian discipleship is. Luke, writing to Theophilus and to you and to I today, wants us to know the essence of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be one of His own? To be one of His disciples? This is not something that we can get wrong. If we're called to go and make them, we must know what they are to begin with. We must know how to be them in order for us to go and make them. And I think we see seven clear realities for what Christian discipleship is this morning. This is what the answer is, I believe. Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship is deeply desiring to know God's Word. Faithfully obeying Jesus' commands. Trusting fully in Jesus' sovereign power. Humbly recognizing our own sinfulness. Boldly embracing Jesus' kingdom commission. Completely treasuring Jesus above all else. And intently pursuing Jesus at all costs. That's Christian discipleship. So this morning, I want to take some time from the text to flesh each and every one of those out for us. One by one. First, we see that Christian discipleship is deeply desiring to know God's Word. And we see this very clearly in the first three verses. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and they sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here we find ourselves around the lake, lake Gennesaret, which if, from the other Gospels, it is the Sea of Galilee. In the Old Testament, it was called the Sea of Chenesaret, right? And so this is the Sea of Galilee. This is Lake Gennesaret. And this is a common place where we will find Jesus throughout the Gospels. One of the central places that He reveals Himself and His power to His disciples. We're told that he has come there and, and the crowd is pressing upon him. The, 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 the word, the Greek word for pressing there is literally that which you would find with a, a wine press. Pressing upon and amidst pushing in order to get to. And what are they coming for? What, what are they so intently seeking to press upon Jesus for? His miracles, right? To see some really cool, amazing signs and water, wonders, Right? No. He says they were pressing upon him to hear the word of God. Now, I love why Luke puts it that way because he makes very clear when Jesus speaks, it's the word of God. The word of Christ is the word of God. They're used interchangeably. They're the same thing. Stop just going to your Bible and looking for the red letters. If we were honest, they'd all be red letters. Because they're either all from Him or they're all about Him or they're all to Him. He is the Word made flesh. So when He speaks, it is the Word of God. And the people are desperate to hear it. They are pressing upon Jesus because they know there's something different about this Word. It goes with power and authority. And when He speaks, things happen. Things happen when He speaks and so they desperately long to hear the Word of God because it brings healing and deliverance and transformation unlike anything they've ever seen. 
They must hear Him speak. But the crowd is very large. And it is almost turning into a mob. Those trying to get to the front, wanting to to hear what He has to say. And so Jesus brings them down to the lake. None of this will be by accident. He brings them to the lake and there He happens to come across two boats. One of them belonging to Simon and Andrew, sons of Jonah. The other boat belonging to James and John, sons of Zebedee. These fishermen by trait. They have been out all night fishing. You'll find for later from the text. They are done. They're washing their nets. And they would do this. They would wash out their nets and then they would hang them up over their boats for them to dry out for the next night of fishing. And they were getting ready to go home. But the Lord comes to them. He comes to Simon specifically. And he probably sees them listening in as well. And he says, hey, I need to borrow your boat. Can you take me out a little ways that I can teach from it? And Simon, even though he is tired and weary from the night, sees it as an opportunity to to oblige this teacher. Because Simon's interested in hearing too. So he folds up his net and throws them in the boat and goes and lets Jesus come in to his boat Pushes out a little way. There we are told that Jesus sits down, that position of the rabbi, that position of authority. And there he turns Simon's boat into a pulpit. Which is why, if you go to many churches, uh, not really ours, ours would make a terrible one, but most pulpits are shaped like the front of a bow on a boat. This is where that comes from. The reality of the fishermen casting the net of the gospel to the people. So he turns the boat into a pulpit. Now, you see along the lake lake shores there around Capernaum, there on the Sea of Galilee, there are these kind of zigzagging inlets along the shoreline that creates a natural amphitheater there. You can literally still go there today, and if you were to push out just a small way into the Sea of Galilee, you you could speak at a fairly regular voice, and it would be heard throughout the hills there around the shores of Galilee. I love this, because the very one who spoke this lake and its shorelines into existence is now using it to speak the Word of God to His people. He spoke this amphitheater to existence for the very purpose of using it one day for the gospel. It's fascinating when you think about it. Simon, longing to hear the words of this Jesus, obliges, takes him out a little way, and he now hears the master teacher proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. We are not told the substance of Jesus' message, we don't know exactly what he said. But we do know the nature of it. That is, they were indeed the words of God. And my friends, what makes that so important is that Jesus now shows us the bait for kingdom fishing. The Word of God. He's already laying the foundation for what He will give to Peter and Andrew and James and John. And that is, this is the bait you will use to catch them. I'm not interested in gadgets or gimmicks. You will catch them with the Word of God. That is the bait for kingdom fishing. And this is the essence of where Christian discipleship begins. It begins from hearing the Word of God. Paul Paul writing in Romans says to this account in Romans 10.17, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Look what Paul calls it there. The Word of God, the Word of Christ, is interchangeable. Where does all discipleship begin? By hearing the Word of God. By hearing the Word of Christ. So if you're going to go and make disciples, you've got to go give them the Gospel. There's an old adage that Francis of Assisi said, you know, go and preach the Gospel when necessary, use words. First of all, I never said it. Secondly, that's stupid. Yes, you should live out the gospel. But they got to hear it 
They got to hear the hope that is in you. You got to give them the gospel. They got to hear the words of God. All discipleship begins and is sustained by the word of God. So we should not be shocked that this is the beginning of Jesus' call to his disciples. Because this is the beginning of every disciple's journey. Hearing the word of God. Nevertheless, that same hunger that marked the beginning of our discipleship should be marked with an ever-growing hunger for it throughout our maturity as Christian disciples. You should never lose your hunger for the Word of God. Rather, our hunger and our desire and our longing for it should increase day after day. Because it is here in the Word of God that we hear and find the voice of our shepherd. I have to be here. Because I must hear my shepherd's voice. I must hear his will for me. I must know the goodness of his promises. Day after day, I must feed my soul with its blessed precepts. Let us learn from both the crowd and from Simon Peter in this example. Let us be like the crowd, unyielding in our desire to know more of the Word of Christ. To press upon this Word day after day, feasting upon it, longing for it, desiring the sweetness of its pure milk and the savor of its perfect meat. Are you like the crowd saying, I, I'll, I'll fight to hear it? One of the most touching videos I ever saw was a video of an underground church that was meeting in a basement in China. And some Christian missionaries had been able to, to sneak in Bibles there in their own language. And the people almost fighting for them were weeping. We're weeping to hold these words. How many of them collect dust in our shelves? How many of them, this is the first time you've cracked it in the last week and a half. And because dust grows on our Bible, dust grows upon our souls. Do you press onto it? Long for it. I must hear the word of God. It is life for me. The Christian disciple must deeply desire to know the word of God to say, I will not be kept from its pure light. Who says, I must live upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To daily feed our soul upon its precious precepts. To know that when I don't have it, I am famished beyond belief. And then are we like Simon, who though we are tired and weary from our toils and labor, say it is worth pushing out to here. Is that not the excuse? Oh, but I'm so tired. I can't read today. I cannot give him 10 minutes in the Word. Oh, my day is tired. I'm rushing for work. I can't get out of bed early. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I can't give him time to work. I can't stop and do family worship. The kids are crazy. They're, they're going to be getting in bed 30 minutes later than normal. Or will we be like Simon who says it's worth pushing out for? It's worth pushing out to hear. It's worth putting off my flesh to hear this word. Can you imagine Simon's life had he not pushed out? And had he just went home? Can you imagine? I, I, I can't. We can't. History is changed because he pushed out. He pushed out to hear the Word of God. And my friends, his life... And the the absolute glory that he would have missed 
had he not pushed out to hear the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, that's true for you today. You are missing life. You are missing the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ so immensely when you refuse to push out to hear the Word of God. I'm tired of hearing excuses about, oh, I, you know, I, I don't know as much as you guys do. I don't know nothing. Every time I come to this word, I just realize how little I know. But get in it. Get in it. There is no excuse here today why we cannot be in the word of God. Except our own idleness. We've got all the time in the world to read the newspaper, to watch Fox News and CNN, to put our mind and to fill our mind with garbage. But we won't press into the Word of Christ for 10 minutes. It's a burden to get through Leviticus. It's a burden to press through Deuteronomy. No, my friends, Christian disciples desire the Word of God. I have to have it in my life. I have to hear my shepherd's voice. It is the guiding light of our lives. And my friends, if we're not filling ourselves in the Word, we cannot make disciples because you cannot give what you don't have. Oh, my friends, it cannot be so for Christ, the disciples of Christ to rob ourselves from the immense blessing of having the words before us. Many a men and women have died to get this to us today. We should faithfully honor their martyrdom and their willingness to put the Word of God before our eyes by daily pressing into it and living out its precepts. Because in this Word, in the Word alone, we find the words of eternal life. When all the crowds left Jesus, He looked to Peter at the end of John 6 and he looked to the disciples and he said to them, are you going to leave with them? And I love what Simon said. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can you go? Disciples deeply desire the Word of God. Secondly, Christian discipleship is faithfully obeying Jesus' commands. We see this in verse 4 and 5. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, this is fascinating because here Simon is not a perfect example of obedience, but he's a he's a really good one. Simon has already gone out of his way for Jesus, right? He stopped for what he was doing, washing his nets. And preparing to go home in order to push out for Jesus' teaching. Who knows how long he taught for? 30 minutes, an hour, a few hours? And now, as he's exhausted and ready to go home, I'm sure, probably even just excited, excited to go tell his wife of the things that he's heard from this incredible teacher. The, the, that man, that rabbi, that master that entered into his boat now turns to him and says, I need you to push out and throw your nets back out. The ones you washed and are done for the day, I, I need you to throw them back out. Now let's put this in perspective. Jesus is the son of a carpenter. A really good rabbi, a really good teacher, it seems like. Simon is a lifelong fisherman. This is his father's line of work. It's his line of work. And now you've got this son of a carpenter turned rabbi who's telling you, I think you need to go back fishing. After you've been fishing all night and got nothing. Let's say you're a mechanic. And you've got all your tools put up and cleaned up. You've been working all night Unable to get a project figured out on this car. You cannot get it to run to save your life. You have scratched your knuckles. You beat up your hands. You said things you probably shouldn't say. And you are exhausted. 
You're ready to finally go home and get a little sleep and see your wife and kids before they head off to school for the day. And all of a sudden, a guy comes in just as you're getting ready to lock up and says, hey, I need to call some people. Can I, can I use your phone for a little bit? And you, out of the kindness of your heart, say, you know, this seems like a nice guy. It seems like a good guy. I'll let him do it. So then he, he calls everyone he wants to talk to. You overhear the conversation. It sounds like really good stuff. So then he talks to you for a little while. And wow, this is, this is really fascinating things the guy says. But now you're kind of like, okay. Uh, it's long. I, I really need to go home and get some rest because I got to come back and figure this out tonight. I got to come back and work and do all of this. This guy, you come to find out, is a school teacher, knows nothing about vehicles. But all of a sudden, he says, You know, let me take a look at that car there. And what I want you to do is break out your tools because I think I want you to fix it just this way. If you replace this part, fix it here, and touch this, it's going to start right up. I just want you to do it. I want you to do this for me. First of all, you're going to think, okay, you're a teacher, I'm a mechanic. I've already done all that. I've literally done exactly what you just said. I've replaced that part. I've turned those bolts. I know that that's not going to work. I mean, You would be like, dude, I think it's time for you to go home because I need to go home. This is all what's happening on Peter's heart. And you hear it in his statement. Master, which was just, it's a word that only Luke uses, but it's the the term for rabbi. Master, we've been doing this all night. We haven't caught anything. There's frustration. There's skepticism. There's all of those things in his response. But he says, at your word. I'll put down the nets. I'll put down the nets at your word. And even with half-hearted obedience, Christ works the miracle. Even with half-hearted obedience, Christ works the miracle. I love this. Christ's call for Simon to be obedient came exactly where he knew it would offend Simon's flesh the most. He is called to obedience came exactly where he knew it would require Simon to crucify his own flesh the most. He calls him to go against what he already knows to be true with his own reason and, and cognitive reality. He calls him to go ex- against his own experience as a fisherman. He causes him to press against his own physical exhaustion and tiredness. I'm tired. I know what it means to be a fisherman. I've done this my whole life. I know we're not going to catch something. It's against all logic. It's against all reason. Everything about what Jesus asked Simon to do goes against everything he thinks to be right. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, Simon, I want you to go home. I'd like you to go get some good rest tonight. I want you to have a good meal with your family. Get yourself recharged. I want you to come back tomorrow. I'll be here waiting. And then we're going to go out and go fishing again. Oh, that would have been comfortable obedience. Sure, I can do that. Because guess what? That's on my terms. It's on my terms. And Christ's call to obedience undermines all means of comfort. And it it undermines all means of rational thought. He just says, do it. Simon says, at your word, I'll do it. And in that moment, this deep net that they dropped into the water is filled with an immense amount of fish, so much so that it begins to pull the boat underwater. So he has to call James and John on purpose. This is all Jesus is doing all of this. He has to call them out to help. And now it starts pulling both of the boats underwater, we're told. These are not small boats, guys. Fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee are 25 to 30 foot long. These are the same boats that Jesus was sleeping on during the storm that carried all of the men on one of them. This is a massive amount of fish. 
that's causing two 25 to 30 foot boats to sink under the water. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. Simon, at this moment, went from being a hearer of the Word to a doer of the Word. And that's the key connection with discipleship. Discipleship is the ability to go from being a mere hearer of the Word, a reader of the Word, to a doer of it. That's when you become a disciple. When no longer does this just become a cognitive exercise to fill my brain with Bible verses, but with a life manual that says, this is how I will live today in light of it. This is what Christ calls me to do, therefore I will go. My friend, Jesus had invaded Simon's personal space. This was Simon's boat. And now, Jesus has invaded his professional life. And guess what? That's discipleship. His boat just be, your boat just became his boat. Your life just became his life. Your profession just became his profession. All of yours just became all of his. That's discipleship. And you have to use it on his terms, not your own. That's what obedience is all about. When Christ calls us to do things, it's going to, it's going to go against every intuition that you thought was right. This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. There's not a lot of money in this. There's, not, there's so many other things I could do. So many other places I could go. There's a lot more comfort over here. My family will be happier. They'll be closer to the grandkids if I don't go over there. This mission field, sure dangerous. Why not just go over to Ocala and deal with the retirement home there? There's a lot of other things that it doesn't make sense to the flesh. But when Christ says go, you better go. Because if you don't go, you're going to miss the glorious reality of who He is. It was through Peter's obedience that that was revealed to him the glories of who Christ was. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He says, if I'm going to know who Jesus is, I must obey Him. The majority of us don't know Jesus because we have not the remotest intention of actually doing anything He asks. The reason why most of us don't know Jesus or don't know His power or haven't seen Him work in immense, miraculous ways is because we just won't even take the first step of going. There's the old adage, which belt in martial arts is the hardest to get. Often people will say the black belt. The answer is no, it's the white belt. Because the hardest thing to do is start. Start obeying Christ. And stop just going, yeah, Jesus teaches this and He teaches that and I love this theology and this doctrine of the grace and all these other things. And we'll do a word that He says. Jesus says, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. So how often are you at the end of your rope? Are you tired? And you feel that pressing of the Holy Spirit upon your heart that you see the reality of your word, that you see this reality, you know the Lord desires and He commands of you but you just say, I got to go home. I'm tired. Ah, not today. Maybe tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, tomorrow isn't promised. Oh, if, what if Peter would have said, Tomorrow, Jesus? He would have likely found out, just like Nazareth and Capernaum, there isn't a tomorrow. My friends, when he speaks, what he says, the answer is, At your word, I'll do it. And it is in that moment that you will see and experience the glories of Christ through the act of obedience that you will never by sitting idle in your faith. And you can be obedient because you know that the results of your obedience are never based upon your power. This brings us to our third point. Christian discipleship is trusting completely in Jesus' sovereign power. Verse 6 and 7, we see the results, right? 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the powers and the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. We've already talked about this. 25 to 30 foot boats, two of them now sinking. This is something that these men have never seen in their life. It went from no catching to now we literally are going to possibly die out here because we can't get back to the shore. We're sinking. And there's only one reason why in a single cast this net caught such an amount of fish. It's the sovereign power of Jesus who put the fish in the net. So often, right? I love reading commentators who try to skirt around the miraculous. Well, Jesus took them to a school of fish that he knew from his own time of observing the lake and they landed it. No! He put the fish in the net. The same way he put the fish in the baskets. The same way he created a fish that could swallow Jonah and keep him alive. Gosh, don't read your Bible and be like, oh, we've got to explain away this. No. This is Jesus' sovereign power. The one who spoke all creation out of nothing into existence. There is nothing too great for him. Which is what fuels the faithfulness of our obedience. I can obey even when I don't understand because I know He's capable. My only excuse for being obedient when it doesn't make sense is He's able. He's able. I don't got any other words. He's able. Why can He use this dumb redneck kid from Florida who got no business being here at all to preach the gospel? He's able. That's the only confidence I have to come here week after week. It's because Jesus is able. His sovereign power is able. Jesus did not say, okay, Simon, I want you to use this new technique of casting. I want you to... to uh, here, I have, I have created something that's going to come out in a few thousand years. It's a nice ugly stick with a bait caster and a, and a Strike King spinner bait. No one knows about this stuff yet. And I want you to destroy it after you use it. No, it's none of that. It had nothing to do with technique or equipment. It had everything to do with Christ's power alone. He is sovereign over fish. He is sovereign over men. This is what he's saying to Simon. Simon, hear me. Obey me. And watch my power go to work through you in ways you can't believe. Hear me, obey me, and watch me work through you. That's the call of discipleship. We can update this building a thousand times over. We could modernize our music. And everything else, we could put every bell and whistle in this place. But the only thing that will ever save a single person is the sovereign saving power of Jesus. He's the only thing that will get them in the net. That's it. Jesus saves, Jesus catches, Jesus draws, and we simply throw out the net of gospel proclamation and obedience. You see, this is the obedience that he's getting ready to call Peter to. What's the main point of obedience of, John, of, John, of Luke chapter 5? And that is, you're going to be catching men, fishers of men. And how are they going to do it? How are these, these uneducated fishermen going to go and launch the greatest message in all of history and create the largest movement the world has ever known that's going to turn the world upside down. How in the world are these ragtag, eclectic group of fishermen going to do it? They're going to do it by trusting in the sovereign power of Jesus. And that's how we're going to do it too. By trusting in His power. My friends, this should be the greatest comfort in the world. If you struggle with inadequacy towards teaching or doing evangelism with anyone, sharing the gospel, take heart over this reality. That the salvation of people is never about you or because of you. It is only through the power of Christ to save. 
who uses even the weakest of us to catch men for His glory. The hope that you have that all His Word will come true and that your obedience to Him will never be in vain is because of His absolute sovereign power. That's why I know it's never in vain. That's why I know every word that I go, every, every opportunity that I have to, to, to spread the seed of the Gospel, it's never in vain. Why? Because His power is the one behind it. If you've got a wayward child, a wayward friend, a person that you have prayed for and longed for, that they might come to saving grace in Jesus Christ, the only hope you have is the sovereign power of Jesus. And that's more hope than anything the world can offer. My friends, discipleship is completely trusting that my king is in control and there's nothing that is impossible for him. There's nothing he can't do, no one he can't save, no mountain he can't flatten, no sea he can't part, no storm he can't steal, no net he can't feel. Discipleship is trusting in Jesus' sovereign power and resting completely upon him. Four, Christian discipleship is humbly recognizing our own sinfulness. Verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now this is remarkable to me. This is the one part of discipleship we often don't like to talk about. It's easy to amen the first three. Peter had just caught the catch of a lifetime. This was going to be on the, the record books of Sea of Galilee, largest catch ever caught. And he was going to be there with a trophy with all of his buddies smiling. This is a catch of a lifetime. This was going to be his biggest payday ever. And instead of saying, hey, can you stick around Jesus a few days? Because uh, you can go fishing with us anytime. He says... Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It's the opposite of saying, wow, look at the way that we get to be blessed when we follow Jesus. Biggest catch of fish we ever had. We could really market this Jesus guy. We can market this strategy really well. Let's get a movement going. Call it, trust Jesus, get fish. Come to Hillside where you will be bountifully blessed. But Peter does something so contrary to that. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Why does he do that? It's because Peter has looked at pure grace. And he recognizes in that moment the absolute and utter holiness of the one in his boat. And when you know of your sinful state in the, in, before a holy God, the only hope is, Lord, please go away because you're going to kill me. When you know who I am, you're going to destroy me. That's what Peter's afraid of. When you know of all the wickedness I've done, all the things I thought, the words I said last night when I couldn't catch fish, you're going to wipe me out because you're a holy one of God. Please depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve you. You are too wonderful and too glorious, and I don't deserve this manner of blessing. And to, to, to take this blessing in light of my sinfulness could actually be wicked. That's the real response when God opens your eyes to His amazing grace. That's exactly the same response that Isaiah had in the presence of the throne room of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why is their response the same? It's because the person they saw was the same. They both saw the King of glory. They both saw the Lord of hosts. And in that moment, when you behold the Lord of glory, the only thing you can say is, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I don't deserve you. 
The only thing I deserve is your hail, your justice, your wrath. Peter knew that in the face of Christ, he was unworthy. And here we see the clearest picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. My friends, as disciples of Christ, we should never lose sight of the fact that we did not deserve the calling and goodness of the Lord to enter into our boat. We didn't. And yet, not only did He enter into our boat, but then He calls us to go after Him. There's no rhyme or reason for that. We deserved judgment. Not salvation. We deserved to be cast away, not carried forward in mission. There is no room for arrogant, self-righteous disciples of Jesus. Only those who know the immense mercy and grace they've been shown. And live their life in light of that, both in gratitude towards the one who saved them and in grace towards their fellow sinners. None of us deserve to be here. And the moment we start becoming the standard of exclusivity of who belongs and who doesn't as opposed to Christ, God help us all. God help us all. So often, we know nothing of humility. Know nothing of poverty of spirit. Because we all expect to be treated some kind of way. And when I'm not treated in the standards that I thought I had for myself, then it allows me to elevate myself and put down others. I become the standard of what is right and wrong rather than Christ. I become the standard of who gets grace and who doesn't as opposed to Christ. My friends, when we walk with that that level of self-righteousness and arrogance, when we aren't daily walking in the meekness and lowliness of I didn't deserve any of this, all I deserved was hell, and yet He gave me heaven. God help us. My friends, we deserved hell. And Jesus came in lowness and meekness and humility. He bore our wrath. And He gave us glory instead. So therefore, the only thing that should go to hell from us is our arrogance and pride. May it go to hell. we got no business looking at anyone else but through the lens of immense grace. Because that's what we've been shown. That's what we've been shown. When you look to the Jesus who made you His own, it should destroy your pride and elevate your praise. I know, I, I, I know that this is difficult because none of us are naturally humble. We may think we are, but usually if we say that, it's revealing more about itself than anything. I'm not humble. Pray for your pastors. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. A truly Christian love either to God or men is a humble, broken-hearted love. A love that lives in light of the immense mercy I've been shown by God. How can I not show this to others? Discipleship always lives in light of our sinfulness, not as a means of guilt or shame. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus but in humility and praise and gratitude that says, if He can save me, there's no one beyond His reach. There's no one beneath me. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one stands higher than the next. So we walk in light of the humility in the light of our own sinfulness and the reality that Christ called us in spite of it. Five, Christ's Christian discipleship is boldly embracing Jesus' kingdom commission. Verse 9 and 10. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished as to the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Because Jesus knows that one day he will die for Peter's sin, he takes that paralyzing fear of his sinfulness, of his unworthiness, and leaves in its place a lion-hearted meekness and boldness for his mission. I love the order that Christ's words come. Christ gives comfort, then he gives commission. Do not be afraid. You will now be catching men. I'm so thankful that he gave us comfort before he commissioned us. All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. That should, that's the, the fear remover there. He opens with a fear remover and then he closes with a fear remover. And I'll be with you always to the end of the age. He sandwiches his commission with comfort. That is a good, good Lord. A good Savior. He wants us to be bold in our mission. Not going out timid in fear, afraid of, well, people may not like us. Yeah, they killed me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In that moment, Jesus changes these four men's identity and purpose. These men's whole identity has been fishing their whole life. This is all their father did. This is what they do. And this is what their sons would do. They're going to fish. And they're going to fish for fish. Now, he changes their identity. You're going to follow me. You're going to go after me. You're not going to go after the reality that you're a son of Jonah or a son of Zebedee. You're going to be that. You are sons of God. You are disciples of me. And you have a new purpose. You will not be catching fish. You will be catching men. That's what happens when Jesus calls you to himself. He changes your identity and he changes your purpose. You will no longer be catching fish. You will be catching men. Now we see the reason behind of all Jesus' action leading up to this. This was all a lived out parable. Jesus is giving them a real life lived out parable through this miracle. You've heard my word. I've called you to obedience. By acting in obedience, you have received a multitude of fish. That's exactly what your discipleship is going to be like. You're going to go after and give my word. You're going to be obedient to my calling. And through obedience to my calling, you are going to see me catch men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I love when Luke uses that word polis there for multitude. A great number of fish, a large number of fish. Because every time in the book of Acts we see that a great multitude came to Jesus, he uses the same term. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes, polis, of both men and women. Acts 14, 1. In Iconium, a large number, polis, of people believed both of Jews and Greeks. He's setting the stage for what the true mission will be. A mission of catching men and women with the gospel of Christ. The multitudes that Jesus will gather through the faithful obedience of gospel mission by His disciples. This is exactly what God promised would happen when He came to gather His people. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, God makes this promise. He says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. This was what God talked about when He was going to begin gathering and restoring His people to Himself in the new covenant. I will send out fishers, I will send out hunters, that they might go and gather them from everywhere, even the clefts of the rock. Their whole life as being fishermen was actually preparing them for a greater calling. And the reason why that's important is because their life as fishermen beforehand was not meaningless. 
And my friends, your life before Christ was not meaningless. Every heel you had to overcome. Every sin you battled with. Every addiction you overcame. Every pain you endured. Was not meaningless before Christ. But it's precisely the instruments that he will now use in you in an immense way. Their previous life was not purposeless. It was preparation. And everything you have gone through has been preparation for where you are today. Every misery you've endured is a ministry that you can now offer. Without the pressure, there never would be the pearl. And my friend, every moment of your life before Jesus, no matter how dark or terrible it may have been, I'm not undermining that in the least. It was not meaningless. It was preparation for how you can now be used by Christ to advance His kingdom and bless His people in ways that without it you never would have been able to. Beloved, with the times we are living in, we must be bold in our gospel mission. For God gave us a spirit not of fear. The annals of history are not filled with those who are careful, but those who are courageous. Though it will come with those that will leave us, despise us, mock us, we should take heart. Our reward is in heaven for being faithful to the Lord and knowing that as we fulfill the commission He has given us, that we one day in glory will reap and see the realities of what our faithfulness through Him was able to bring forth in glory. Even if just one is one by our faithfulness, it is worth an eternity of celebration. So be bold in your commission. Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Let us be bold and courageous in our mission. We have been made fishers of men. That is Christian discipleship. I'm going to wrap these two together in the end for time's sake. Number six and seven. Six is this. Christian discipleship is completely treasuring Jesus above all else. Christian discipleship is completely treasuring Jesus above all else. And number seven. This Christian discipleship is relentlessly pursuing Jesus at all costs. I put this together because it's from the same verse. Verse 11. We read, And when they had brought their nets to land, they left everything and followed Him. They left everything. Once again, this is the biggest payday of their life. They didn't go cash in before they left. They didn't stop and say, Hey, can we make sure we get the money for this first? Let's wait till this stuff is sold and then we'll go, Jesus. How can they do that? How can they leave the greatest payday of their life, the greatest reality that would have probably set their families up for future comfort? How could they leave it behind? Because they treasure Jesus over everything else. He's greater than any payday, He's greater than any comfort. The only way you'll ever be able to remain steadfast in being disciples of Christ, the only way you're going to be able to endure the scorn by men, the only way you'll ever get over the fear of sharing the gospel to others and teaching the word of God is to treasure Jesus above everything else. Treasure Him above your possessions, your pride, and your comfort. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That He is more valuable to me than everything else. Or to say with Paul in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. That's discipleship. That if I lost everything tomorrow, He'd still be enough. 
That's discipleship. To say, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives or takes away because He's more than enough. He's my treasure. He's my reward. He's the pearl of great price. I'll lose anything so long as I have Him because in Him I have everything. That's discipleship. Treasuring Him above all else. Being able to leave everything behind and it is following Him. Pursuing Him at all costs. They left everything and followed Him. That is the best definition of discipleship there is. What is discipleship? I left everything and I followed Him. Everything that marked the old me was left behind and now I'm all His. That's discipleship. When He is your treasure, He will be your pursuit. Whatever you, you have affections for, there your will will go. So if my affections are Christ, my will will go after Him. If I am holy to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I must forsake everything that's contrary to Him. Those nets just meant a life of continual toil. But to follow Him meant life eternal. So what do you want? Do you want a life of toil or do you want life eternal? And there's only one way to do it. You've got to set your eyes on Christ and go. And go follow Him. Salvation is free. But discipleship is costly. It will cost you everything. But He is worth it. He is worth it all. All of me belongs to all of Him. The road that leads to heaven is risky, lonely, and costly to the world. And few are willing to pay the price. But following Jesus involves losing your life and finding new life in Him. Whatever you're still holding on to, selfish ambition, sinful pleasure, comfortable places, bitter grudges, precious idols, whatever it is, it's time to leave it behind and follow Him. It's time to let it go and follow Him. It's time to leave them on the shore of a once past vision and now pursue Him relentlessly at all costs. When we come to Christ, we're no longer the most important person in the world to us. He is. It is dying to self in order to live for Him. Because when you live for Him, there you will find peace. There you will find joy. In the midst of the most immense persecution and tribulation, you will find a peace like no other. A life like no other. A hope like no other. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for He has said that He will bring me home. And day by day, I know He will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. You're going to sing that in just a few moments. Don't let it be a lie. Let it be the call of your heart to go after Him. When Jesus makes you His own, He changes your identity, your purpose, your passion, and your priorities. So pursue Him. Go after Him. And there is no part of us that He will not daily nourish with His power and strength and mercy and grace so that you can live faithfully for Him. Every day, you will need His mercy. And every day, you will get it. In immense, immense ways. We are disciples of Christ. Deeply desiring to know God's Word. Faithfully obeying Jesus' commands. Trusting fully in Jesus' sovereign power. Humbly recognizing our own sinfulness. Boldly embracing Jesus' kingdom commission. Completely treasuring Jesus above all else. And relentlessly pursuing Jesus at all cost. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Father God. Oh Jesus. Thank You for invading the boat of our lives. Thank You for pressing into our hearts. For changing our identity. Changing our purpose. Changing our passion. Changing our priorities. And to set them fully upon You. 
God, You have taken sinners, rebels, and You have made them agents for Your glory. Agents for Your kingdom. And for that, God, we can never sing Your praise enough. We can never thank You enough. Oh God, let us leave this place for once knowing what it is to be a disciple. To no longer living half-heartedly in our faith towards Christ, but that all of us would be consumed for Him. That all of us would be immensely pursuing Him. Pursuing Him in our homes. Pursuing Him in our, in our professions. Pursuing Him in all things, God. God, give us a hunger for Your Word. Give us a compassion for those who are sinners around us. A bold desire to be fishers of men. To not be afraid. But to walk in the knowledge of Your power. In the glories of Your grace. And in the provisions of Your mercy. Day by day. Oh God, let us go after Jesus. Let us stop turning away to the vain distractions of this world. Let us stop holding on to the nets that are not catching men, but that are just entangling us. Let us lay them down and go after the King. For there is life in Him. There is hope in Him. There is joy in Him. Unimaginable. So Lord, this morning, there was someone here who was swimming astray. God, I pray that you have caught them. That they have surrendered to you. And they will not leave this place without having done so. And knowing full conscience that they will. And Lord, I pray that we will all leave here. Boldly impassioned to be catching men and women. Boldly impassioned to be followers of you. That your glory would be made manifest through us in every way. Lord, we are so thankful for the freeness of your salvation. But maybe we, may we be now willing to count the cost of discipleship. To take up our cross and follow you. Lord, let every heart today say, yet not I, but Christ through me. As we sing together, no turning back. No turning back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.